you have your Bibles, you can turn to Job chapter 2, week 3, and we're only in chapter 2 of 42 chapters. This is going well. But I want to read starting in verse 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zohar, or Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. So we're currently in a series on Job called No Easy Answers. Week one, we took time to look specifically at Job. Who was he? What was he like? What were the qualities and attributes? And we, we read where he was a man of complete integrity who feared God. Last week, we took time to look at the accuser, Satan. And we also looked at the, the roots and the nature of suffering and specifically the things that we can learn from Job's story and how he navigated the suffering that he was in. This week, I want to take a, a time to look at the largest section of the book of Job. And this is Job's exchange with his friends. We just read about him. Three friends travel to Job. And we find from chapter 4 all the way to 27 begins this exchange between Job and his friends. Each of the, the three friends give, well, two of them give three speeches each. Another one gives two, and then Job responds to their speeches to him. Job also takes time in there to call out on God for an audience. So obviously, from chapter 4 to 27... There's not a lack of content, so we won't get to all of that. But I want to start just by giving you a quick summary on what Job's three friends spoke with him about. They, they each brought a different argument or a different reason that Job was going through the incredible suffering that he was undergoing. So we'll start with Eliphaz the Temanite. Aren't you glad your parents didn't name you Eliphaz? People just going, so is that with a PH or is that with an F? I don't. So the major point of Eliphaz's three speeches is that Job was suffering because he sinned. 
All of Job's suffering we can trace back to Job's sin. So in Job 5, 8, we read him say, If I were you, I would go to God and present my case to him. He's saying, listen, there's some sin. You better go to God directly and present your case to God. Then in Job 22, in his third speech, his, his tone has changed from kind of trying to lead Job to go, well, maybe there is some sin in your life. And the tone shifts to this. Is it because you're so pious that he accuses you and brings judgment against you? No, it's because of your wickedness. There's no limit to your sins. So this is the friend that showed up to comfort Job. And then he just keeps going through and showing how sinfulness always leads to suffering and how only the sinful suffer. That's Eliphaz. Then we come to Bildad the Shuhite. For Bildad, the, the major argument that he brings against Job is that he's suffering because he won't admit that he's sinned. So all, all Job's doing is denying, no, I haven't sinned. That's not why I'm And this guy's going, listen, Job, just between you, me and you and Zophar and Eliphaz, why don't you go ahead and just admit it? This can all pass. Just admit that you sinned and that's why you're suffering. And that's all of his argument hinges on this. So Job 8, 2 to 7, he says, How long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Now listen to this line. Your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. You remember, all of Job's family were killed as a tent collapsed. All of his kids perished. And Bildad, in comforting Job, says, I think they had it coming. And he continues, but if you pray to God and seek the favor of the Almighty, and if you appear and live with integrity, he will surely rise up and restore your happy home. And though you started with little, you will end with much. So he's saying, just admit it. God will restore all this. Just admit it. It seems like for, for Bildad, everything is so obvious, and Job just won't cut to it, won't cop to the charges against him. But it's a horrible thing when a person's going through suffering like Job did to go, yeah, I think, I think your kids deserved it. One of the worst things I think you could say to a person
Then we come to Zophar, the Namathite. And Zophar's argument is even a little more pointed than the first two. Claiming that Job deserves even more suffering than what he's already experienced. Now at this point in the story, Job's lost everything. All of his livestock, servants, wealth, family, and his health. What more should the guy suffer? But this is the argument that Zophar brings against Job. Literally, says Job 11.6, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. Continues later in the chapter, if only you would prepare your heart and lift up your hands to him in prayer, get rid of your sins and leave all iniquity behind you. He's just going, yeah, you should get even more until you own what you've done. So who really needs enemies when you have a friend like Zophar? Fascinating, hey? Shows up to comfort Job and then tells him, "Mm, actually, I think you deserve more. So let me come to touch a little bit on Job's response. Now, at the core of Job's response, if you boil it all down, is this unshakable commitment and insistence that he was innocent and that the suffering he was facing was not because he was sinful. He would not budge on that point. And in Job 32, verse 1, it says, Job's three friends refused to reply further to him because he kept insisting on his innocence. So they came, they they debated back and forth, back and forth. Eventually they just go, Job Job isn't going to move. He's not going to budge. And it's at this point that we encounter actually a fourth speaker. You can read about it at the start of chapter 32, but He's, he's a younger guy. His name is Elihu. And he's, he's been listening to this whole debate, to this whole exchange. And it, it says that he got angry about the situation because nobody was able to answer Job. Nobody was able to respond to Job. And then he speaks out at this point. And, and he's younger than Job, and his argument differs from the first three that are brought against Job in that, that, that he's claiming that God is using this suffering that Job's going through to mold and to train Job. So he, he's essentially saying, this is, this is character building for you. You're obviously lacking in some character. And this is God training you. Now, if that sounds um, a little bit arrogant, let me read what he says in Job chapter 33, verse 33. He says, 
Listen to me. Keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. How well would you receive correction if somebody led with that? Olivia, how are you doing with that statement? <laughs> Olivia, shh, shh. Listen, I'm going to teach you some wisdom. I'm just kidding, but I can feel a measure of wrath bubbling on the front row towards me. I think any time I talk to you henceforth, that's probably how I'll, I'll start it. So it comes off a little bit arrogant. Shh, I'm going to teach you. But then he starts to talk a little bit about what this looks like in Job 36. He says, if they listen and obey God, they will be blessed in prosperity, and they will be blessed with prosperity throughout their lives. All their years will be pleasant. But if they refuse to listen to him, they will cross over the river of death, dying from lack of understanding. For the godless are full of resentment, even when he punishes them, they refuse to cry out for help. They die when they are young after wasting their lives in immoral living. And then this is the crux of his argument. But by means of their suffering, he rescues those who suffer, for he gets their attention through adversity. So his whole argument is, hey, Job, this is God going... Are you listening to me? I'm trying to get your attention. Um, there's a, a funny thing with Elihu where uh, I went to theological school. I have a bachelor in theology. And when I was in Bible school, there was these, well, we thought of them a little bit like stuffy old professors that would come in and teach you. And I'd love to say the story's about someone else, but it was about me. Um, but we had a, a measure of arrogance as younger folks going, well, this is obvious. This is just how it works. And there'd be some older person slightly more seasoned in their faith, and they would say, mm, maybe, but have you considered... And we'd be like, no, it's totally this. Like, pick any topic. And there was a measure of arrogance that we held as young, budding theologians trying to educate our professors about the nature of God. And what was crazy is when I was in year three or four, you'd see first-year people coming in and by year three or four, we'd already be going, oh, man, that kid should listen more than they talk. <laughs> and you could see this contrast where there's something that occurs the longer a person walks with God. And they've seen some highs and some lows. And their understanding of God has maybe grown slightly more diverse. It's why when, when you have one of our seniors in this church pray for you, it carries a, sometimes a different weight. There's wisdom 
in people of an earlier vintage. They've traveled a bit farther, and, and that's what I think is shocking to me in this story with Elihu is just how aggressively he tries to correct Job. And, and remember, Job was someone who was considered wise. There's other sections where he reflects on how people would come to him asking him for wisdom. And for me, this is a reminder that I need to perpetually be in a spot where I'm learning and I'm listening and I'm reading and I'm taking the wisdom from people older than I am. I'd be a fool to avoid seasoned wisdom or presuppose that somehow I just might know better. But that's just for me. So I want to get to a, a few things that we can take away just from these arguments. We've covered a lot. There's so much more that could be dug into in this exchange with Job and his friends. And, and next Sunday, we're going to take some time to look at the pleas that Job has with God for an audience. And also to look at, there's this fascinating sense that some of these Old Testament folks had in their understanding of God. And, and remember, it's like before we had the Bible. But they had somehow this knowledge of who God was that was unshakable. You see it in Abraham, who's considered the father of, of faith, where he just knew something about God. You see, it, you see it in King David. People are murdered, people die, and it's his fault. Yet he somehow has this unshakable understanding that God will forgive him and that he's loved. And, and with Job, there's this, he's like, He's talking about things in, in some of these sections that are like, I think he's, he's talking about Jesus, but he wouldn't even have had an idea that Jesus was in the picture yet. And it's fascinating. So I want to take some time next week to touch on that. So I'm not glazing over it or skipping over it. But it's a fascinating section of Job that I've, I've just been mulling over and pondering, like, how did he know God so deeply that even in the midst of his suffering, he's going, I'm going to trust you in the middle of this. When it seemed like even for his friends, there was no reason to trust God. Their arguments aren't bad. There's, there's times, I think, for friends to come to you and bring this kind of correction. Hey, listen, you lost your way, and I'm going to help you get back on the path. But Job had a knowledge of God that just fascinates me. But that's next Sunday. So a few things that I want to take away from this scripture today for us. 
The first is something that I'd call the gift of presence. So before we get to the 23 chapters of Job's friends uh, beautifully comforting him with uh, excessive amounts of debate, they start out by doing the best thing that anyone can do for a person who finds himself in a place of suffering. They give him the gift of presence. So this isn't a term that I made up. There's a lady who preached many years ago uh, here named Wendy Lowe. And this was the first time I heard this term, the gift of presence. And it's stuck into my head ever since. And I've been reminded of it. But we read about it at the start of this text today. Job's three friends hear that he's suffering and, and they don't just go, I should, should I text him? Yeah, maybe I'll text him. Well, no, they actually stop what they're doing and they get up and they move and they go visit Job. They heard he's suffering, so they went to him. And once they get there, they see his immense suffering and they they take a moment and they actually tear their clothes, which is this outward picture of what they're feeling inside. And it says that they wailed. But after that, there's a period of, of seven days and seven nights, one week where they don't say anything. And they just sit with Job. They just sit with him. Now, you might kind of go, well, like, how is that helpful? They just kind of sit there. But they gave him this gift of presence. But eventually, they just had to start talking. They couldn't help it. And why in the world did they feel like it was the right time to start debating and explaining all of their incredible wisdom to Job about the nature and roots of his suffering? And, and furthermore, why, why did they think it was the right time to start telling him that he should actually suffer more? Um... It's the same reason why people say dumb stuff at funerals. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. I'm working at church, officiating some funerals. For some reason, there's like a, a pause in a conversation, and then somebody goes, well, everything happens for a reason. Or things like, well, maybe it's better this way. Or, well, I'm sure it will all work out in the end. And for some reason, we have this innate need to try and fix something or offer some word of comfort. And then it, and it almost comes out like the words that Job's friends shared with them. Where you're trying to be helpful and... Uh, 
and you come across less than helpful. When a person's going through a difficult time in life, they, they probably don't need you to just come in and try and fix everything or give them a bunch of rational thinking on what they should do. They probably just need you to come in and sit with them and stick an arm around them and weep with them and listen. Let them know that they aren't alone, they aren't forgotten, they aren't going through this by themselves. And they need this gift of presence from you. And you might feel like, oh man, I don't like when people are going through difficult stuff. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Listen, we just went through a whole bunch of stuff that it would have been better for Job's friends if they had just come for the seven days. And then it said, and then they just went home. We would all think great things of them. But the trouble started when they started talking. So you don't need a degree in theology. You don't need to have all the answers on the roots of suffering. But you, to people in your world, can offer them this gift of presence. And it's far more helpful. Um, my sister is recovering from some surgery. She had a friend who flew out, took time off work, just to be with her. She made her cookies. And it was probably the best thing anyone could have done. Just sat with her. They laughed. The gift of presence. Beautiful, far more helpful. So if you're ever around a person who's going through some suffering, please, 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 please just keep your mouth shut. Next thing, whose side are you on? Now, I don't know if that whose is spelled right. I, is it with the apostrophe or is that right? So it's interesting in this story of Job that you only hear about Satan for two chapters. Isn't that fascinating? Then you never hear about him again. There's no follow-up. So why is that? Well, I don't think he had much of a job left to do once Job's friends showed up. It's like uh, they were like, Oh, there was an accuser here? Is that job open? We can fill that role. They called Job actually horrible things. From chapter 15, a few excerpts. You're nothing but a windbag. Your sins are telling your mouth what to say. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. And you can go through and they just berate him. There's parts where Job's going, I think you've insulted me ten times over. That's in there. 
But it ends up in this spot where they really made the devil's job easy because they did it for him. So have you ever found yourself on the end of an exchange like this? This is a great person, and all of a sudden, they just tear a strip off you, and you go, what happened? What was that? Now, you might expect it from some people, but what if it's a good Christian friend and all of a sudden they just unleash a tirade of hurtful, accusatory, derogatory speech against you. Maybe you've been on the other side and you've done that to someone else. But I don't think we see the, the devil again, the accuser, because Job's friends took the job over. So in Galatians 5, we find two lists of qualities. One is a list of the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to develop in our lives. That's things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, to name a few. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And the other is a list of traits of the sinful nature. Some highlights from there. Things like hostility, quarreling, jealousy, selfish ambition, dissension, and division. So which side of the spectrum do you think Job's friends fell on during the speeches? Were, were they following, were they just manifesting the fruit of the Spirit when they called him a windbag? You get this strange contrast in their speeches. So as you're journeying through life, it's a wise thing to consider whose side you're finding yourself on in any given moment or situation or relationship. Do your thoughts, do your words, do your actions line up more with the list of the fruit of the Spirit or more with a list of the sinful nature. And if you find that you're erring towards a sinful nature, it's a good time to go, okay, so sorry, whose side am I on in this? Am I making the devil's job easier? Or am I actually going, God, let me bear your fruit in my life? Job's friends, I was just talking with Sue before the service. They might have had good arguments, but they seem to have an issue both with tact and timing. You can say the right thing the wrong time, and it's not helpful. You can say the right thing the wrong way, and it's not helpful. But whose side are you on? Last thing I want to mention here. Which God are we talking about? My favorite comedian once said this. I hear people say, I don't believe in God. 
And my question is, okay, so which God is it that you don't believe in? Because I don't know if I'd believe in the God that you think is God either. And, and what he's pointing out is that any given person, when they hear the word God, has an idea of what that means to them. So if we went out on the street today and just started talking to people and said, what do you think about God? I'm assuming they're thinking about the God that I know and how I know him. I'm assuming that they're talking and thinking about the God that I read about in here. But when that person hears the word God, they could have a far different understanding of who he is. And so much of the debate that we find with Job and his friends was influenced specifically by how people would relate to the many gods that we would have found in the ancient Near East. There would be multiple gods, and, and how people related to these gods would always be by trying to appease to them. I've got to please this God so I get this outcome. And it became this thing of perpetually just trying to please them. And if something went wrong, which God have I offended? It's all wrapped up in this idea of retribution that I get everything I deserve. I obviously did something wrong, and here's the outcome. Or I did something right, and now look. And this was the argument of Job's friends. But this didn't work for Job because he was a man of complete integrity who knew and feared God. And what he was experiencing experiencing wasn't jiving with who he knew God was. So instantly, there's a conflict. So listen, when you hear the word God, what do you think of, and what's your source for that thought? Job's friends were very much influenced by their culture, on their understanding of God, and all of a sudden they start putting that projection onto God that this is who he is and this is how he behaves, wrongly. But we can end up in the same spot in our modern culture. So a few examples. If you worship at the modern altar of comfort and convenience, you'll have a really hard time when the God of the Bible says, hey, take up your cross daily and come follow me. That's going to be a tough thing if your idea of God is that it's cotton candy and flowers every day. If you worship at the modern altar of celebrity, you'll have a hard time with a God who asks you to live humbly and to put others before yourself. If you live at the modern uh, altar of excess, you'll have a hard time with a God in the Bible that tells you it's better to give than it is to receive. But we have the benefit of this Bible that we can read and we can go, God, teach me to know you like how Job knew you, how Abraham knew you, how Jesus knew you. I want to know that, God. I don't want 
all this fluff. I don't want all this extra. I really want to know you. I don't want to be swayed by all these things. I don't know if you remember when that Da Vinci Code movie came out. There was people whose theology just got completely destroyed because there was like, no, what, Jesus was married? I never read that part of the Bible before. And it's like, well, it's because it's not in there. <laughs> and people were really in trouble because a movie shattered their understanding of who God was. I don't want a faith that can be shattered by a movie. I want to know him. Like, really know him. I don't want a counterfeit. I don't want somebody else's understanding. I want to know him. And it starts with falling in love with the word and falling in love with God. Not just that church but at home and going, God, lead me. Talk to me. I want to know you, and we can. So, Victoria, if you could come to the keys. I just want to hint on one more thing as we're closing this week, and we're going to dig more into it next Sunday. But sometimes what people struggle with in the book of Job is that it seems like there's a strange contrast between the God that we read about here and then the God that we read about in the New Testament. It can seem almost different. And uh, in this story of Job, we don't know um, precisely why Job went through what he went through, and that's just because God doesn't tell us. Can theorize, lots of people have, but God doesn't actually tell us. But then we can contrast this with another story that's shrouded in some mystery from the New Testament. In John 8, there's a woman that's brought before Jesus, and it says that she was caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act of adultery. She's thrown at Jesus' feet, and and what's his response? Did he start to debate with the lady or debate with the crowd? No. If anything, he offered this lady the gift of presence. At a time when it would have been unthinkable to do that. Did Jesus assume the voice of the accuser to this lady? No. And when this whole mob of people were saying, you know what the law says, she should get killed for this right now. Did Jesus go with the predominant culture? Did he follow? No. Jesus bends down and he writes in the sand with a finger and it never tells us what he said, what he wrote. Another story that's shrouded in some mystery because we don't know all the answers. We can speculate, but we don't know. But as he began to write, people started leaving. 
this mob dissipated. And he said, well, let those with no sin throw the first stone. Everyone leaves, he says to the lady, where are those that condemn you? They're gone. He says, and neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And what's fascinating is that we don't have all the answers in this story. There's a lot of mystery, but it, it seems like it seems like God pushed against some of the things that even the religious people of that day would have thought this is how it should all work and this is how it should all play out. And in a moment, we're just going to pray and then I'll dismiss you. Maybe just a question to ponder in the next week between now and next Sunday is just... So do we want a God that's stuck in a set of rules that with our human understanding we can contain and fathom and force him to play by? Or do we actually want (laughs) to know the God that we read about in the Bible who's bigger and greater and wiser and more loving than we can possibly imagine. When we look at a story like Job, we want all of these answers and we want everything explained. But I sure don't want a God who would have said, yep, you caught her in adultery, kill her. I love that there's a God that we have to know. There's mystery and trust in things that are bigger than us and more amazing. Ponder that. Do you want a God who's going to play by your set of rules or do you want to know the God that's bigger and won't be contained? Let me pray for us this morning. So God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you meet with us God, I thank you that we can know you deeply and intimately and close. Father, I pray that we would look more like you. Father, I pray that you'd show us how to live as Jesus lived, how to walk as you walked. Father, help us not run or fear mystery, but to run into it. Because we just might find you there. So, Father, help us this week. Fill us again with your Holy Spirit. Empower us to bring light and love and the gift of your presence to every person we meet. In Jesus' name, amen.